Today we return to our series in the book of Ephesians after a few weeks off. Two weeks ago we had Easter, last week we had a guest speaker. We're in the final chapter of this marvelous book, and we will make it to the end over the next few weeks. I quickly remind you that the first half of Ephesians, chapters 1 through 3, tell us of God's plan for His world and our place within it. And thus, we've titled the entire series through the book of Ephesians, Your Place in God's Plan. You see that on the screen. And then beginning in chapter 4, Paul, who wrote it, and then throughout the rest of the book, Paul tells us how we are to live consistent with God's design for us. His purpose is, according to chapter 4 and verse 24, God's purpose for us in chapter 4 and verse 24 is that we would be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And we're told that this resemblance to God in righteousness and holiness should display itself in the way we think, in the way we talk, in the way we act, and in the way we interact with one another. We're also told that it will not be easy to live consistent with the calling that God has given us. And the reason it will not be easy is because we have an adversary who still believes that he can thwart God's plan for us and he will fight to the death in the attempt. And so verse 11 of chapter 6 tells us, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Now the devil cannot and will not win. Christ has guaranteed our victory by his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. The devil cannot win, but he does not believe that. And so he fights on, ferociously so. And our ultimate victory requires that we fight. Although our relationship with God is secure and cannot be changed, and it will not fail, it does involve a battle. Though the victory is inevitable, it is not automatic. It's inevitable, but not automatic. It does not just happen. It involves our active involvement, engaged in the battle. But the good news is we are fully equipped for the fight with six pieces of essential armor that are mentioned in verses 14 through 17. We've seen, beginning in verse 14, that we've been given the belt of truth, that we have the breastplate of righteousness, the protective boots of the gospel of peace, and the shield of faith. Today we come to the fifth and six items that equip us for this fight. In verse 17, note what it says. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, we'll probably only have time today for the first of those two. It's the helmet of salvation. And I'd like for us to see what a helmet does and what salvation is so that we can have some understanding of what's being communicated to us when we are told take to yourselves the helmet of salvation. What does a helmet do? Well, in both athletics and in military contexts, a helmet breeds confidence. 
that we would not have had without it. Now, I've not been in the military, but I'm certain that no soldier would want to go into unknown or dangerous territory, and certainly not into battle without his head protected by the helmet. I have known from experience and observation that in sports, a helmet gives confidence to one who would not otherwise have it. Some of you may know we are now in the midst of the NHL playoffs, from which, unfortunately, the Red Wings were eliminated in the last couple of days. Some of you are old enough, perhaps, to remember, like me, a time when, in the National Hockey League, players were not required to wear helmets. In the 70s, they implemented a rule requiring all incoming players to wear a helmet, but those who had been in the league for, I think it was 10 years, were exempted. And so they could continue to play without a helmet. So you had this situation for several years where some were wearing helmets and some were not. So even though I began watching, after the rule was in effect, there were still plenty of players who were not wearing helmets. And so I remember watching, I'm really dating myself, Channel 50, Channel 20, Hockey Night in Canada, and there were people playing who didn't wear helmets. And that went on well into the 80s until the exempt players began wearing a helmet or they retired. Some of you may remember Ron Duguay. You guys remember him for the Red Wings? Had the long flowing locks, no helmet. And over the last 25 years, it's a fact that the game of hockey has speeded up considerably. Players skate faster, and they smash each other into the boards at a velocity that was unimagined in prior decades. Now, why is that? Well, there's training which has gotten better, and so the players have become stronger. That's true. But it's also the confidence of the helmet. You can now fly into a guy and even into the boards, and the risk of of injury, though still very real, is diminished considerably. Sometimes this protective equipment, particularly a helmet, breeds a kind of faux courage in guys who are otherwise sissies. I saw this when I played hockey as a kid. Now, as kids, we were always required to wear helmets. But when I was about 12 or 13, they implemented yet another rule that said you had to wear a mask. And it was this cage that was attached to the helmet. It covered your whole face, and I hated it. Couldn't see very well out of it and all that. But one of the things I noticed after guys started wearing the mask was guys who were not particularly physical and certainly never got in fights... They were now ready and willing to take on the world. Now, why is that? Because they knew there was little chance they'd be hurt. They trusted the protection of the equipment, and it bred confidence that they otherwise would not have had. And so it's not uncommon to hear another player or a coach offer motivation before a game by saying, strap it on. Strap what on? Strap your helmet on and let's go. It means get ready for battle, game on. A helmet breeds confidence. And I say in the outline that was inserted in your program, if you'll take a look at that, that if we are going to stand firm as we are told to do in verse 10 of chapter 6, and then again in verse 13 of chapter 6, if we're going to stand firm 
in our place in God's plan, then we must have God-given confidence. We must have God-given confidence. And this confidence should be displayed in three ways in our lives because of three things that God has done for us in salvation. We must have confidence, first of all, that we are saved. If we're going to stand firm in what God has called us to, we must be confident, confident, first of all, that we are saved. Now, that brings me to the second thing. We are to put on the helmet, which gives this protection and thus this confidence, but it's the helmet of salvation. And I'm saying here that we must be confident that we are saved, saved and salvation. They are terms we use a lot, but if asked to define them, we perhaps would have to scratch our heads a bit. Let's make sure we understand what we mean when we say we have to be confident that we are saved. The word saved in Scripture means to be rescued, to be delivered. And so, to be rescued then, saved, delivered, from what? And we're going to see from what in a bit, but the first thing that we are rescued from is not actually a thing at all, it's a person. We are rescued, we are delivered, first of all, from the wrath, the anger of God that abides upon every person who comes into the world in our sin and will be punished unless God in His grace intervenes. And so we have to have this confidence that we are saved. Saved means delivered, rescued, rescued from what? No, first, rescued from whom? And it's rescued from the wrath of God. Now, how do I know this? Here's what the Bible says. You're storing up wrath against yourself for the day, now notice this, of God's wrath. Now, I want to give you just a warning that for the next few minutes, this message is going to be a downer. Because I must, as I talk about being delivered, rescued, saved from the wrath of God, I must spend some time making sure that we understand that God's wrath and God's anger are very, very real. And are infinite against those who have sinned against His righteous character. And His wrath, His anger will be poured out forever because it's an infinite offense against an infinitely holy God. Poured out forever unless God intervenes and provides another way. Jesus, many of you may know, Jesus spoke when he walked the earth more about hell than about heaven. Does that surprise you? And often Jesus would make reference to this infinite punishment that will occur for any who reject the punishment that God has supplied in its place. Here's one instance of what Jesus said. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands and go into hell where the fire never goes out. 
And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. He goes on. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Well, we should all be maimed then. Because we have all sinned with our feet and with our hands and with our eyes. And Jesus was speaking in hyperbole. We know this because none of his followers actually did that. But Jesus was saying, this is how very important this issue of eternal destiny is. And that there is a place of punishment forever that is infinite because sin is an infinite offense. So much so. That when you come to the end of the Bible and the end of human history and the last book of the Bible that is called Revelation, at the end of human history, this is what we are told. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Friends, a more serious, sober matter cannot be imagined. Our eternal destiny is in the balance as it relates to our relationship to Jesus Christ, who we will see in just a bit, took the punishment that we deserve so that we don't have to go there. I want you to understand with regard to this issue of hell. The Bible is very clear that it is forever. And the reason it is forever, I alluded to two weeks ago on Easter. God himself came as man to do for us what we could not do for ourselves in Jesus Christ. And he had to be God in order for the price that he paid on the cross to have infinite value. It had to have infinite value because our offense is infinite. And so God became man, and he is the only one who could have died a death in your place and in my place that has this infinite value. Because sin is an infinite offense, once it, let alone the hundreds and thousands and all of those that I don't even know about, that I have committed and that you have committed, If one sin is an infinite offense against a holy God, then why, dear friends, do we play with silly notions as though I will stand before this holy God and I will offer my paltry good works to Him and I'll say, is that good enough? No chance. Unless God intervenes. And thanks be to God, He has in the God-man, Jesus Christ. Punishment in hell will be forever because sin is an infinite offense. But Jesus has taken upon himself infinite God. The God-man has taken upon himself the punishment that belonged to you and me. 
And that's why the Bible says, That Jesus rescues us from the coming wrath. Notice, rescue. Jesus delivers. Jesus saves us from the coming wrath. You might think of it this way. You remember in the first part of your Bible, most of us learned this in Sunday school, that God called a man named Noah. And the Bible calls Noah in the New Testament a preacher of righteousness. And God said to Noah, I want you to build a boat. And he gave precise dimensions for that boat with multi-levels. And he told him what materials to use for it. And God said, the reason you're building this boat is because I am going to, because of my wrath, my righteous anger against the sinfulness of men, I am going going to destroy all life on earth except for those who take refuge in the rescue of the ark. And Jesus is the ark. And I am telling you, as a preacher of righteousness, enter the ark. Come to safety in Jesus. Because the wrath of God will surely come. The Bible tells us that this is what Jesus has done for us. He was pierced for our transgressions. And he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. The helmet of salvation, the helmet of rescue, gives us confidence And first of all, that confidence comes from our having been saved, been rescued, been delivered. Now, that we are are saved in the now. And then that has practical effects for us in daily life. We can then, if we understand and truly are saved now, then we can live out of a sense of security in the present. Because of this rescue, this salvation, this deliverance that God has given us in the God-man Jesus Christ has a number of blessed aspects to it. And I'd like to remind you of some of those aspects of the salvation, the deliverance that is given us in Jesus. We are saved because the Bible teaches this. We have been chosen. We've been chosen to be rescued. Not because of anything you deserve or anything I deserve. The Bible is very clear about that, is it not? But because of His mercy, He saved us. In fact, it so required His mercy that there was nothing that He foresaw in you or me, but rather for His own choice that we should be, according to Ephesians chapter 1, to the praise of His glorious grace. And so verse 4 of Ephesians 1 says we were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. This rescue, this deliverance that we can have now is based upon the fact that we have been chosen. And those who are chosen, the Bible also says, have then been justified. Now what's that word mean, justified? Well, 
one easy way to think of it is, is God looking at it, us just as if I'd never sinned. I'm justified before God even though I have sinned and I've sinned many times and many more times than I could ever count. But because Jesus never sinned, and because now I can have refuge in the ark that is Jesus, God looks at me as though I have never sinned. I am justified. And so the Bible says this, to the man who does not work, that is, the person who does not have the silly notion that I can do enough good stuff to offset my infinite bad stuff, to the one who does not work, But trust God, who justifies the wicked. His faith is credited as righteousness. And David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God... Now notice, God credits righteousness. The righteousness of Jesus, apart from our works. Blessed are they whose sins are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. That's the man and woman you want to be. Whose sin, infinite though it be, God does not count against you because Jesus' infinite sacrifice is applied to you. And his infinitely righteous life is credited to you. And so we are saved because we have been chosen and because we then coming to God through Jesus Christ, believing in who He is and what He did, are then justified. And the Bible says further that we're adopted. So I have this confidence that I am in the present saved, which means I am secure in my eternal destiny because my sins have been completely washed away, past, present, and future. And the righteous life of Jesus is credited to me, not because of me, but because of Him. And then my position is radically altered before God. I am no longer a stranger, an alien. The Bible even says an enemy of God upon whom His wrath abides. No longer. I am now a son or daughter of God. Adopted into His family. And the Bible says, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. The Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. And so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Can you begin to think about how this confidence that the helmet of deliverance gives us should have effect on us in the here and now, in our daily lives? Because we all live out of a sense of identity. If we understand who we are in Jesus, we can now live confidently because I've been delivered, because I've been chosen, because I've been justified, because I've been adopted. I need not live in fear, fear of man, fear of what might happen to me. I certainly do not live in loathing of myself. I have the standing now before God, again, not because of myself, but because of Him. But in His mercy, He has given me this marvelous standing as a child of God. 
Did you know that there are people in increasing numbers in our culture who hurt themselves on purpose? (coughs) Excuse me. Suicide. Teenagers. They abuse themselves, often by cutting themselves, cutting their bodies. Many committing, ending their lives. What's going on in the mind of a person, young or old, who harms his or her body and ultimately takes their own life? They have a view of themselves that is radically different than what we've seen here, don't they? Not equipped with the confidence that comes with the helmet of deliverance and that have been chosen and have been justified and that have been adopted and therefore I have a future because I'm an heir of God. And so we have this confidence. If we're going to have our place in God's plan, we must have this confidence, confidence that comes from understanding that we are delivered, we are saved. But hear this. God loves us too much to simply save us from the penalty of sin, but then leave us in our present self-inflicted misery. You see, being delivered, being saved, is much more than fire insurance. It is not just... Thank you, Jesus, I'm not going to hell. That's true. But Jesus is also saving those who are saved. We're saved. Past tense. But he's in the process of also delivering, saving us from ourselves and from all of the issues that we brought to him. Notice what the Bible says. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Now notice the way that's phrased. Those who are in the present perishing. Not in hell yet, but in the process of perishing. But to us who, notice this, are being rescued, are being delivered. The gospel, the message of the cross is the power of God. What is that saying? It's saying that the Bible teaches that we have been saved, but we are being delivered as well. And so something else is going on in our lives. Not only have we been chosen and justified and adopted, but in the present now, God is at work in the lives of those he is rescuing to, use biblical terminology, sanctify us. To rescue you, deliver you from the junk that is the manifestation of your sin. He does not leave you where you were. He is actively involved in taking you to where you need to go. What does the Bible say? Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, 
nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now I'm going to read on in just a moment. Is not saying that one who belongs to God will never commit any of these things. It is saying that those who belong to God are being rescued from those things. I'm not what I should be, but thanks God, thank God I am not what I was. Because his rescue operation is operative in my life now. And in fact, the passage goes on to say, and that is what some of you, now notice this, you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. That word means set apart. It's related to the word holy in your Bible. You've been called out of the world and out of that stuff to be different. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. So we must have confidence that we are saved. But I say secondly in your outline. We must have confidence that we are being saved. Rescued. Rescued from the vices that we brought to Jesus. Delivered from those. You can think of what some of those vices may be. They may be the very vices that you have and do struggle with. Substance. Alcohol. Drugs. Drugs legal or illegal prescription or otherwise. Delivering us in the present then from ourselves and our self-inflicted vices. Delivering us from ourselves in terms of how we see ourselves, how we talk about ourselves, how we think about ourselves, how we view ourselves. Delivering us, rescuing us from others and the need for their approval. And what the Bible calls the fear of man in Proverbs 29 and verse 25. We must have confidence that we are being saved. That we are saved and that we are being saved. Now let me tell you, dear friends. Jesus loves you too much to leave you where you are. He has given his Holy Spirit. He has given his word. He has given his church to be used in the process of you being rescued from you. And you being rescued from the fear of others. You being rescued from, as Pastor Matt says on his Facebook page, Jesus rescues us from the American dream. And all of the other idolatries that capture our hearts to draw us away from the true and living God. Jesus is actively delivering us from them. We must have confidence that we are saved. That we are being saved. And we must have confidence as well. Thirdly in your outline. That we will be saved. That we will be delivered in the future. 
You see, when Jesus saves us, when he delivers us, yes, he saves us from the wrath of God and the penalty that we deserve. Our sins are covered by his blood, past, present, and future. But he is actively delivering us from ourselves in the present. We are being delivered. And the Bible teaches one day will be our ultimate deliverance. And you and I must live with confidence now, right now, that we will be ultimately saved. Now, what difference does that make? Well, Jesus saves us from what I call the tyranny of the present. You all heard the tyranny of the urgent? But there's just the tyranny of the present. That is, I am mastered by this tyrannical master that is all the junk, the stuff, the hardship, the difficulty of the present. And I become so immersed in everything that is going on in my life and is happening in my life that I forget what the Bible tells me over and over and over again that this life ain't all there is. Thanks be to God. And that you, Christian who have been saved and are being saved, need to look forward to the time when you will be ultimately delivered. And if you do that, you'll see that the junk going on in your life is not worth comparing to the salvation you will one day have. The Bible says, That our salvation, our deliverance, includes the guarantee of our glorification. (laughs) Romans 8.30 says that, that we've been predestined, chosen before the foundation of the world. And that we've been called in time, called out of the world into God. And those who are called are those who are justified. And those who are justified are those who, past tense, are glorified, even though you haven't been glorified yet. It's past tense, because it's as good as done. Predestined, called, justified, and glorified are an unbroken chain. That means that then, in the present, I know that I have a guarantee of the future. And it makes a profound difference in how I look at the stuff that I'm going through now. It means, like the great apostle, we do not lose heart. Friends, do you see those words? We do not lose heart. I'm going to read on. But I am saying to you, brother or sister, that thing that you are contemplating giving up on, as you are contemplating throwing in the towel, understand that Almighty God says we do not lose heart. Why do we not lose heart? Is it hard? Absolutely. Is it difficult? Has it been long? Absolutely. But it is not worth comparing to what we will have when we are ultimately saved. We do not lose heart. Why? Though outwardly we are wasting away. Inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Why? Because for our light and momentary troubles. Do you see that? Do you get it? The present is hard. It's a fallen world. It's difficult. But compared to eternity, it is light and it is momentary. And not 
worth comparing to eternity. These light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Pastor, you don't know how bad it is for me. You don't know how bad it's been for me. I've not been in your shoes, that's true. But you see, I don't have to be in your shoes for you to get this truth because you don't serve Ken. You serve Jesus who has been in your shoes and more. Right? His troubles were vastly more than yours. His temptations and his death, not for himself, for you, were vastly more. His servant Paul, who wrote this, you want to spend a day or two with Paul? Just travel with him, get shipwrecked on an island, get off, get bitten by a snake. Then whine to him and tell him how bad it is for you. It won't last very long, will it? And he's the one who wrote, we do not lose heart. And our troubles, including his troubles, are light and momentary compared to eternity. And he says, we endure because we have something to look forward to. We can endure, come what may in this life, because we maintain a next life perspective. Your perspective and my perspective, every moment of every day, yes, I'm saved. Yes, I am being saved. But thanks be to God, I am going to be ultimately delivered from myself, from the sin of others, from this fallen world. I'm going to close by telling you how you can do that, how that can be actually achieved, and giving you some examples from some people who've done it. Okay? So stay with me for a few more minutes. The reason you can do this, the reason this can happen in your life and in my life, it's not because I can just screw up enough courage, not because I just have it deep within me. <laughs> None of that's true. It's because, now get this, when Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6 to put on this armor, he is describing armor that is described in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Some 700 years before the time of Jesus, Isaiah predicted, prophesied, that there would be one who would come who would be called the Messiah. We read from Isaiah 53, the prediction of what his death would accomplish. But this armor is described... In Isaiah chapter 59 and Isaiah chapter 11 and chapter 49. And chapter 59 of Isaiah is what's called a messianic chapter. Isaiah 11 is a great chapter describing the messianic king, the Messiah who will be king. And how he's going to come and establish his kingdom upon the earth. Isaiah 49 is what's called the great servant song that Jehovah Almighty God sings. Isaiah 53 is one such. And all three of these passages then are passages that speak of the Lord Jesus Christ as the warrior king of God. <laughs> and when I'm delivered and when I am saved, the Bible describes me as in him. 
This is armor that he has secured and he applies. And it is because of my relationship to him that all of these things can be done and I can fight this battle and be victorious. And friends, there are people that have gone before you and me who have done so. I'll give you a few. In the third century, just at the beginning of the third century, that would be the 200s AD, the Roman emperor gave an edict that all should bow down before the Roman gods. And there were Christians who refused, of course, to do so. Among them was a 22-year-old noblewoman named Perpetua. 22 years old. She had an infant son, but she had come to Jesus. And she was told she must bow down before the Roman gods and goddesses. She refused to do so. I would read for you, but time does not permit, and it's probably okay because it's really gory. But this 22-year-old blessed girl was given to beasts and killed. Because of her faith in Jesus. As you read her story, it is clear she had a next life perspective. She had it fairly well in this life. She was a noble woman. But she loved Jesus more than she loved her stuff. And she loved the next life more than she loved this life. And she gave her life in martyrdom. She had a slave girl named Philistia who likewise had come to Jesus, gave her life in that same auditorium before howling and raging crowds. We have all sorts of examples of people who had a next life perspective. They are saved, they're being saved, and they look forward to the time when they're ultimately delivered. And one of them is in your Bible. In the last chapter of the last book, that the great Apostle Paul ever wrote, 2 Timothy. The last chapter of 2 Timothy is chapter 4. And in chapter 4, beginning in verse 6, he says this. As he is in prison and he knows he is going to die, the time of my departure is at hand. He knows he is going to die. And in the last verse of the last chapter of the last letter, that this great man wrote. He says this, The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. Notice he uses the word rescue. Shortly after writing those words, Paul was beheaded for Jesus. Now, was Paul rescued? Absolutely. Delivered. Saved. Rescued. By means of death to this life. For life in the next. Friends, you and I can and must live with confidence. Confidence that comes from the helmet of deliverance of salvation. That we are saved. That we are being saved. And that thanks be to God, we will be saved. 
Now we all, if I were to take a poll right now and say, how many of you agree with what I've said? You'd all say yes. Because what I've said is true from God's word. But acknowledging it intellectually and carrying out in our lives are often two different things, right? So as we bow before the Lord in just a moment, I want you to think about your life and think about your struggles and think about whether or not you are using the armor that God has given for the deliverance from the tyranny of the present. Whether or not you are living with a next life perspective. Hear this, we can, we can look at Paul, we can look at Perpetua and Philistia, and we can say, how beautiful, and, and I would do that for the Lord. But if you won't live for the Lord, there's no chance you'll die for the Lord. And how much better for us to take stock of how we are living for the Lord and then prepare ourselves for our translation into the next life, however he deigns to bring that about. Some of you here need to be rescued, initial rescue. You need to come to the ark that is Jesus. How do you do that? Realize you need the ark. Realize that you abide under the wrath of a righteous God, that you are a sinner. And recognize that Jesus paid the price in full for your sin on the cross. Repent of your sin, that is, I'm going to follow you with my life. You are my Lord. You are my God. I'm going to go your way, not my way. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. Now, how do you do that? We're going to bow and pray in just a moment. And as we do, Christian friend, I encourage you to bring before God the sinful approaches that we've taken to the present and the next life. And if you've never come to the ark that is Jesus, I encourage you to simply pray from your heart to God, acknowledging, Lord, I'm a sinner. I need the forgiveness that only Jesus can give. I want to follow you with my life. I give my life to you. In your words to God, and he promises to save, to rescue you. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you for the helmet of deliverance. Thank you for the confidence that we can have and must have if we're going to accomplish the purpose that you have designed for us in calling us out of the world and into yourself. Thank you for the conviction of your Holy Spirit that comes through your word, conviction for me, conviction for us as your people. I pray, Lord, that your people right now are doing business with you and they're thinking about how they live in the present. And whether or not they desire to be and are in fact being delivered and rescued from the tyranny of the present. Their present circumstances and their present idolatries. And I ask you, Lord, to help each of us to ask ourselves, am I living with a next life perspective? And if not, help us to confess that readily. And repent and to go your way. I pray for any who entered this room, who came without being in the safety of the ark that is the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray they are entering now by means of belief, believing who he is and what he did, receiving him as Savior, bowing before him as Lord. Be glorified, Lord, in our lives. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.